Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello and welcome to the Wisden Cricket Weekly Podcast. In today's show, we'll be picking the England men's test team of the 2000s and the England men's ODI team of the 2000s. With me to do that today is the Wisden Cricket Monthly magazine editor, Joe Harmon, and the editor-in-chief of the Wisden Cricket Monthly magazine, Phil Walker. How are you guys doing? The new magazine's just gone to print, is that right, Joe? Uh, Yeah, we pressed the button yesterday evening, so just kind of catching our breath and what better way to do that than to to look back at England's ODI team of the noughties. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Before we start picking the teams, a bit of news on the prospect of international cricket this summer. England is still hoping to get their international summer underway in early July, which is only six or so weeks away. This week, a first big step has been taken with 18 bowlers returning to training starting from today. That's Thursday. Although it's not been confirmed by the ECB yet exactly who those 18 are, ESPN Cricket Info reporting the 18 are Sam Curran, Amal Verdi, Jamie Overton, Craig Overton, Don Bess, Jack Leach, Lewis Gregory, Mark Wood, Ben Stokes, Jimmy Anderson, Sakiba Mood, Matt Parkinson, Stuart Broad, Ollie Robinson at Sussex, Joffrey Archer, Chris Wokes, Ollie Stone and Moeen Ali. Joe, what do you make of that development? I guess there have been a couple of pieces of news in the last two, two, three weeks that have maybe come as a pleasant surprise to cricket fans. Um, and also, do you think there's much that we can take into the reading of the 18 players that have been selected? Um, in terms of cricket happening at all, it's definitely um, there's reasons to be optimistic, certainly over the last, over the last week or so. Uh, it just struck me as we we're putting a plan together for the next magazine. Our next magazine, in theory, should be a, a series preview for the West Indies, which seems faintly absurd given the, the state of the country at the moment. But that does seem to be uh, where we're heading. Um, there's obviously determination on the part of the ECB to get it done for financial reasons. It's a necessity, if possible. Um, but also, crucially, that the West Indies and Pakistan are willing to play ball um, enthusiastically, so it seems... Also, it's financially useful for them, but there does seem to be uh, yeah, a determination to, to kind of club together, make sure this series happens, if at all possible. And um, yeah, when we start talking about squads that are being picked, uh, it feels like we might be kind of entering a new, a new phase of this. Uh, and the names, yeah, it went, 18 names. If you're not on the list, then you're a long way from playing test cricket, I suppose is the, is the obvious point to make. Um, 
But you look at that squad as, as ever, they're looking for raw pace where possible, not just for this summer, but with an Ashes tour in the not-too-distant future. Um, Ollie Stone, who's had his injury problems, is an interesting pick. Saj Mahmood, skillful, but also very pacey. And then Jamie Overton, the twin brother of Craig, who's, who's the quicker of the pair, it's quite an interesting selection. He's 26 now. He still doesn't get in the Somerset side a lot of the time, but they still clearly think very highly of him. Um, and it's because of that, that raw pace that he's got. Um, so, yeah, some interesting names. I suspect when we get to the team itself, um, it'll be much as it was previously. Uh, but it's interesting to see who they've got kind of coming up in the backgrounds. Phil, as, as Joe kind of touched on there, does it feel weird talking about the return of cricket and also just for the first time in quite a long time, talking about who England's fourth-choice spin bowler might be for a possible tour to the subcontinent, uh, given the state of the country and the very abnormal lives that we're all living at the moment. That's a bit, actually, now you point it out. Um, when Joe said that our next magazine, after the one that's coming out next week, will be a preview of the West Indies series, my heart sank. <laughs> I'll be honest. I just thought, oh, I've, I've been having so much fun putting together sort of left field, offbeat things. And we've had more ideas in the last two or three months in the absence of any actual cricket than we have done in a long, long time. Um, it feels, feels slightly underwhelming to be having to talk about, you know, bats and balls and who should play and who's, who's 12th man, this, that and the other. Um, but yeah, look, it's, it's good. It's obviously good. Um, uh, interested to see Verdi selected, um, albeit in this vast bloated squad. Uh, yeah, Murray Nally's the best attacking off-spin bowler in the country for me, but uh, Verdi has, has the numbers behind him uh, to suggest that he might one day be able to fulfil that role. So that's, yeah, that's, that's a positive thing, I think. Um, and yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a nice thing to see. You know, Stuart Broad stuck a video on Twitter this morning and, you know, he's running in and the pitch has been cut at Trent Bridge and so on. And yeah, look, it stirs the soul. Uh, to get the sense that we might one day, in the not-too-distant future, to be fair, actually get a little bit of cricket going on again. You know, it, it, would, be, it would be lovely. And uh, there's a shaky optimism now around the game that certainly wasn't evident maybe four or five weeks ago. Anyway, our England teams of the 2000s. We'll start with the Test team. Only performances from January 2000 to December 2009 should be taken into account. We're not going to spend as much time going through each position as we've done when we've previously picked teams on this show. We've both gone with identical top sixes, Chaskothic, Strauss, Vaughan, Peterson, Thorpe and Flintoff. I just want to throw in a few names into consideration. Uh, Mark Butcher had an excellent start to the decade. Ian Bell averaged over 40. Paul Collingwood's best moments as an England test player came in this decade. And of course, Alistair Cook as well. Joe, how close were you to uh, omitting any of your top six from the team? I wasn't close to dropping any of the top six. Um, well, I suppose the, the toughest choice, even though it wasn't that tough a choice, was the openers, because obviously Alistair Cook, a uh, decent batsman, he'd got 10 test hundreds in the noughties. But still, when you can compare that with Drascothic and Strauss, he's still a little way off. And crucially, his, his record in the Ashes up to that point wasn't especially good. I think he was averaging 26, I looked up earlier. So obviously, if you added on another year, taking in the 10-11 Ashes, he'd have had to be in that team and then you'd have had a very difficult choice perhaps between Strauss and just Gothic to, to join him probably. So that was the trickiest choice of the six. But I also vaguely considered picking Bell as well uh, as a seamer who I won't mention their name quite, instead of a seamer um, whose name I won't mention quite yet. Um, but then I'd have left my bowling a little bit light 
Plintoff would have been one of a four-man attack rather than a five, which didn't really work. But Bell, Bell was my kind of next cab off the rank, I suppose. Yeah, same here. I looked at the Bell record. I remember it quite well. Um, I remember his debut that I saw live when he made a classy 70. Um, and he finished the decade as well with a brilliant 100 in South Africa, that kind of coming-of-age tour of his. Um, I think it was a Durban, maybe? I'm not entirely sure. But anyway, he made, Durban, yeah. made, right, okay. you were out there, Joe, weren't you? I was, yeah. Uh, but in between, of course, Bell's, Bell's record was patchy in that decade. Um, he made that stunning 199 at Lords against South Africa, I think, in 2008. But either side of that, there was a few easy runs at home against the West Indies but, and a good summer against Pakistan. But then there was some pretty fallow periods in there as well. And obviously the 05 series probably came a little bit too early for him. Um, well, yeah, what I was going to say, what, what we've ended up here is what the top six probably should have been for the 05 Ashes, isn't it, yeah. really, with, with Thorpe in, in for Bell? No, indeed, indeed. Um, Strauss, Strauss versus Cook, I think Joe makes, makes uh, absolutely the right, the right call on that one, really. Forget, sometimes you forget with Strauss because the captaincy became the dominant story of the Strauss-England uh, career, but... Two or three years, he was just an unbelievably good opening batsman. And he went to South Africa on that tour that really set up the 05 series and was irresistible out there, really. I think 300s and a 90. Uh, 200s in the... Uh, he actually, either side of the 06-07 Ashes, the disaster tour, I think he lost his way slightly because I think he was expecting to become the captain. I think most people were banking on him becoming the captain. And then Flintoff... I, 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 as a hunch, Flintoff was given it, really. And I think that halted Strauss for a, for a, a period of time. But, but his quality overall speaks for itself. Those 200s, of course, in, in, um, in India as well, sort of capped, capped that, that decade. So I think Strauss edges it from Cook um, for that decade. Born at three, I mean, he, he had a better record as an opener, to be fair, Born, You know, he was irresistible as an opener for, again, a couple of years. 023, that famous tour in, in Australia, but also the India tour before the India series before that. Um, what, what it looks like, this whole team, what it looks like to me, there's a sort of attractive flimsiness to it. You know, you would think over a 10 year period, you'd be able to get, you'd be able to hang your hat on pretty much every player in that side. But you, you kind of can't really with, with, with the best that Joe and I have been able to come up with. There is a flimsiness to it. You know, Fred at six. He was great for a year or two at six, but he was found out a little bit at six either side of that. Obviously, Peterson is slips in there at four. Uh, Truscothic never made an Ashes 100. Good player, really good player, but never made an Ashes 100. So there are weaknesses throughout that top six, really. Or there's fallibilities and vulnerabilities throughout that top six. Yeah, it's quite an interesting period. A lot of the guys that we're going to end up selecting have genuine claims to, that they were world-class players for a year or two period in the 2000s. But very few of them managed to sustain that consistency over the course of the decade. We've also, the, the period we're looking at is quite interesting because it covers the rise of the 05 sides, but then also the collapse of that side, and then the beginning of Strauss's team, but not quite hitting its peak. So on a couple of selections, you're like, do you pick the person who, whose career had ended in the noughties, not necessarily all that well, or do you pick someone, and I won't mention any names here because we'll come on to them, but he was very much on the rise, but doesn't really have the numbers within this decade to warrant selection. So it's quite an interesting period in that sense. 
And just just one thing briefly on Thorpe as well as the as the most 20th century of this of this team, if you like. But if you actually look at his record, averaged just a tick under 54 in this period, in this decade. And he made some seriously good runs as well. Not, not easy runs. He made some proper runs. He made hundreds away in Pakistan, hundreds away in Sri Lanka in that, on that famous tour when he played Murali as well as Lara. He made that famous return hundred, of course, at the Oval, albeit he was plumb second ball against Sean Pollock, but made that fabulous 120-odd in that incredible game against South Africa in 03. So Thorpe made some great, great runs. Brilliant as well on the West Indies tour in 04-05. So to have had that run and not to have played, as Joe referenced earlier, not to have played in that 05 series, it's, it's a, a brutally anticlimactic end to a brilliant, brilliant career. Um, he should have played in that series. No, no two ways about it. Right, we've got a top six then. On to the keeper now. Neither of you picked Alex Stewart. Phil, you picked Geraint Jones. Could you explain why? I, um, I picked both of these teams, the ODIs and the Test team, and uh, realised just before I sent them to you, Yaz, that I hadn't picked a wicketkeeper for my Test team, which is a poor reflection of me. And it's a recurring theme. It's a kind of Bob Warmer thinking outside the box kind of coaching. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I guess that shows how diligent I've been in my research of, of England's glovemen during that particular decade. I, I went with Jones because obviously he's, a part, he's an indelible part of that story, the story, but he also, he was, he was a fabulous player for a year or two before that as well. He made a brilliant 100 in his second game against New Zealand, I think it was. Um, I'm doing this all from memory, to be fair. Uh, and he, he was part of the spirit of that side in, in, in the heart of the decade. I guess... Either side of it, what? Well, Joe would, I imagine, was probably probably gone with with Pryor, which probably makes sense on balance. I would say, um, and you know, if I'd been a little bit more uh, sensible, then I'd have, I'd have probably landed on Pryor as well. Uh, but Pryor, for me, his 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 golden period was 10, 2010 onwards, really. Um, and uh, yeah, so I went with Jones, partly a kind of a romance element to it. I couldn't really write Flintoff's name down uh, and Gilo's name at eight without sticking Garrett Jones in the middle of them. Joe, you didn't go for Alex you either. You went for Matt Pryor. Yeah, this was this was what I was just talking about. I mean, he, he as Phil said, he hadn't really completely nailed Test cricket, but equally, he played 25 matches in this decade, averaging 42 with a couple of hundreds in there, including one on debut at Lords against the Windies. So whilst he hadn't reached his peak, he'd still had a really good start to his test career with the bat. It should be said, in this decade, he was not a good keeper. I mean, that, that certainly came later. Um, so you could argue that he doesn't deserve to be in there uh, for his keeping skills. He was more of a batsman keeper at that stage, certainly at that stage. Um, yeah, Stuart was the closer than Geraint Jones to me when I was weighing it up. Um, Stuart would have not kept wicket... Well, he only played three, four years of this decade. So, in the end of 03, Stuart. Stuart played the most tests as keeper this decade. So he kept in all 40 tests he played this decade. Um, on Pryor, Pryor's average is inflated by a brilliant record against West Indies, who weren't great at that period. So if you take away his West Indies runs, he only averaged 29. Stuart averaged 39 from nine tests against Australia, who were... Uh, by some distance, the best team in the world at the time, and played the most games 
and reliable keeper. I think we're uh, maybe a bit hesitant to pick him because he's very much associated with the 90s. But I think it's very, very fair to pick Stewart here as the keeper for the 2000s too. You could definitely make that case. And you could also say, as you've kind of hinted out there, Stewart scored his runs in harder circumstances than, than Pryor did. N- number seven, particularly as that England t- team became stronger, became a pretty cushy position because there was generally runs on the board, suited Pryor come out and play some shots. Imagine we'd have probably had quite a few not-outs prior as well to, to boost that average, I'm guessing, with that. Yeah. Um, so even though neither filler I picked him, I'd be comfortable with, with Alex Stewart if you want to force us that way, Yes. Yeah, yeah. And also, also, if we're looking at stories of the decade, part of the story of the decade for England was finding a replacement for Stuart. Like, it basically took England until the end of the decade to settle on Matt Pryor in, what, 2009 was when Pryor like, properly nailed down his spot on the team. So I feel uh, on, a, on a couple of levels, very comfortable with Stuart. Um, should, we go, should we go with Stuart? Yeah, Stuart makes sense. And, and he went left the scene, didn't he, at the Oval in 03, uh, you know, with all the garlands and so on. Yeah, I, I, think, I think Stuart makes sense overall. I think I'm absolutely happy to, to bow to that one. Stick him in there at seven. Or maybe even six and Fred at seven. I don't know. What do you think, Joe? Do you know, I, I was looking up Flintoff's batting record and I assumed his record was better at six when he had a chance to be more of a proper batsman, but actually it's marginally better at seven. Uh, not much in it, but marginally better. So I'm, I'm, I suppose it should probably, probably be Stuart six, Flintoff seven. All right, I'm happy with that. Right, that's our top seven sorted then. On to the bowlers. You've both picked Hoggard and Harmison. Joe, who's your third seamer? This might be heavily influenced by the fact I've just been doing a piece for the magazine on the West Indies 2000 series when Caddick was kind of untouchable at Lords and then famously at Headingley where he took four wickets in, in four balls. Um, sorry, four wickets in an over. Uh, he, I was watching some video highlights of that and as he starts his spell at Lords, I think it is, Michael Holding on commentary is absolutely tearing his hair out because Caddick is bowling so well, having bowled so badly in the first innings. And they keep referring back to his, the disparity between his first innings and second innings record. So I, went, I looked it up. Uh, he averaged 37 in the first innings test matches and 21 in the second innings of test matches, which is, because, I mean, there's got to be some kind of reason behind that, but it's not clear what it is. And then in the th- fourth innings of a test match, uh, when it comes to bowling a side out, he averaged 17. So you can kind of spin that whichever way you want. You could say either he's a match winner that gets the job done at the end, or he's flaky and lets the opposition get a head start in the game and it's hard to, hard to pull it back. Having watched the highlights of Caddico the last couple of weeks, I've been persuaded by the argument that he was, uh, he's worth selection here. Um, I'd be interested to know who Phil went for instead, because... Is it the same place? Well, Anderson was the closest for me, other than Caddick. Well, I, I went with Goff rather than, than Anderson or Caddick. Okay. Um, and and I found it difficult to split the two. In the end, I gave it to Goff because, well, I mean, the stats bear it out. Um, you know, he, he had a lower average over this period of time from not, not too many fewer games than Caddick played. But it was more that Goff did it in conditions where Caddick didn't. You know, Goff was very effective on that famous sort of uh, kind of generational sort of winter, that Pakistan and Sri Lanka winter, really. And Goff took eight for at Candy. He took wickets as well in Pakistan. He was the, the spearhead, really, of that, that side for NASA. And although 
Caddick was just as lethal in the West Indies series. It was Goff, really, who drove that particular test match. It was Goff who got that test match going at Lords. And so, for me, Goff just edges out Caddick for the, for the reliability factor as much as anything else. And, and looking at this side, you know, we've both gone with Harmison and Hoggard. A quick word on Hoggard before we move on. But... For me, Goff's going to just deliver it day after day. And he offers something a little bit different, I think, to Harmison and Hoggard. I think Caddick, Caddick would slip in there doing a Hoggard-like role, whereas Goff could come in there and change the direction of a game more regularly, I think, than, than Caddick. So, so by a nose, I've gone with Goff. And it's interesting that neither of us have gone with Anderson. Anderson made his international debut, I think, in 2002-03, that winter, having played for Burnley that summer. Uh, and then suddenly out of nowhere becomes the opening bowler for the, for the one-day side in the World Cup, age 20-odd. For the three years after that, though, he had a, he had a rough old time of it, did Anderson. He, he would, obviously, he didn't feature in the 05 Ashes. I think he might have been a 12th man, possibly, for one of the games, but he didn't feature at all. Went to um, South Africa the, the winter before that, and all but, all but collapsed, technically. He was all over the show, and he'd been pissed around with by the England bowling coaches a little bit, as he would say. Uh, he took two for 160 or something like that at Johannesburg, and he couldn't land it anywhere. He was bowling long hops and full tosses every other over. And, and it was only really when Harmison and Hoggard, sorry, when Caddick and Goff were completely moved on, uh, that, and then Harmison and Hoggard were kind of shifted along the, along the line as well, that Anderson and Broad became became the, 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 two, the two legends that we now don't know them to be. But Anderson actually matured quite late in the day and was averaging 35 in Test cricket across this decade, despite having made his debut six years before the end of it. So, and yeah. 46 away from home in this decade, I looked up as well, which is obviously the thing that gets thrown at Anderson, particularly among by Indian and Australian fans, that he doesn't do it away from home, which is not true in the latter part of his career at all. But certainly in that decade, it was true, so that's why he missed out for me, even though he took more wickets than Caddick and Goff, um, although, albeit from more games. How close were either of you to picking Simon Jones into this team? He had that amazing 2005 Ashes, obviously, and he only played six fewer tests than Goff at an amazing strike rate, and his peak was arguably as high as both Goff's and Caddick's and arguably higher. I feel like we, we quite regularly lament the, uh, the injury-curtailed career of Simon Jones on this show. We seem to come back to it. Yeah, uh, so, I was a better bowler every week, Simon Jones. <laughs> yeah. This is part of the problem. It's not just... I mean, Goff only played 24 tests in this decade that we're talking about compared to Jones' 18. So it's not a huge difference. But Goff did have that body of work from, from the 90s to emphatically tell us that he was a world-class bowler over a long period of time. With, with Simon Jones, we'll, we don't know. I mean, we obviously know he was good enough, but we don't know if he'd have been able to maintain it. The suggestions were... He never had an exceptionally brilliant first-class record. It was always a bit of a punt to go with him because of his pace, and he showed how good he was. But I, for me, it just it's not it's not enough of a career to say this man is a, in our bowling attack of the, the decade. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And, and, and while that summer was astounding and legend-making, the body of work didn't really exist before that, particularly. I think he debuted in, in, in 02 against India, all right, he was a young bowler, sure, but he didn't pull up many trees, to be honest, um, in that in that early part of his of his unfortunately truncated career. So yeah, I'm comfortable without 
but by leaving Jones out of the side. I just wanted just to add on Hoggard. Now, I know this, we're not debating whether he should be in the side or not. Hoggard took 248 test wickets in, this, in his entirety, but in this decade. And 28% of it, 28% of those dismissals, 248 of them, came against batsmen who averaged 45 or over. So this notion that Hoggard was a workhorse, you know, and would block an end and run into you all day and then get the, the, real, the real players getting to work at the other, just, it's not really borne out by the stats. And again, going back to 05, in microcosm, that was the Hoggard story. You know, he might not be breaking records. He might not be taking sixfers and sevenfers and so on and building up that column of five-wicket halls. But he was getting out Hayden. He was getting out Clark. He was getting out Ponting regularly. Uh, and that was the story throughout his career. Uh, the BBC five years ago did a, did a long survey, uh, quite an in-depth survey, looking at English bowlers throughout history, from Truman to Botham to Willis, etc. Hoggard came out top by their... Um, their, their, you know, their system that they put in place, Hoggard came out top of, of all of those bowlers is in terms of weighted wickets. Wickets where you've got real proper players out, not cleaning up tails here and there, but getting real players out. Hoggard came out top of that. He, 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 will, he will die as an underappreciated bowler, Matthew Hoggard, I think. He's one of England's greats, without a doubt. Right, we need a decision. Goff or Caddick, who's it going to be? Well, look... I, I always liked Caddick more. I, I liked watching Caddick more because he was awkward and self-conscious and would always have the potential to let you down. But then when it was his day, it, he, was, he was irresistible. Uh, he, Caddick's more my kind of cricketer than Darren Goff. I don't know what that says about me. So I'm comfortable with it. I'm comfortable with, with Caddick getting the nod. But I wouldn't have put Goff in my side if I didn't think that his record over this period is slightly superior because he did it in conditions where Caddick didn't. No, I'm, I, it's, there's not much between them. I mean, Caddick took a few more wickets, played a bit more, but I, I would say Goff was the more complete bowler, certainly over his whole England career. It's just when you try and pin it down to this decade. Uh, I think... However... Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah. No, I'm, I'm going to... I'm feeling quite generous today. I'm a bit tired. I'm going to step back, actually, for the reason that Andy Andy Caddick took 10 wickets at Sydney in 2003 in his final ever Test match. So there's definitely a case to be made that he could have had an absolutely garlanded summer. Oh three four, he could have even played in 05. Might, might have even heard of, of Matthew Hoggart. So let's go with Caddick because he was sawn off, sawn off in his prime. He was. So let's go with let's go with Andy Caddick. Uh, rather than Mr. Goff. Nice. Um, he won't get into the team, but Ryan Tybottom took his wickets at 27 this decade. Again, it's quite a small sample size, so a similar problem to Simon Jones, and he never played a Nash's Test match. But I thought it was worth mentioning his name at the very least. On to the spinner. Joe, you went for Monty. Phil, you went for Giles. Joe, why did you go for Monty? Better bowler. <laughs> you got uh, you got Giles to play the most matches took the most wickets, very useful runs from number eight and safe hands at Gully. Or you've got Monty, uh, obviously nothing with the bat, negative value in the field most likely. But he's just such a better bowler. I've had to pick him. Eight five-wicket hauls in the decade, as many as any English bowler. Um, 
he obviously suffered a bit from the, the emergence of Swan towards the end of the decade, who for me was still in the mix. Swan played how many games did he play? He took 62 wickets in the decade. So I think it's enough to be in the mix just about. Um, but for me, yeah, it's, it's, it's Monty. Uh, I have ended up with, this might be a team of the noughties, but it's very much an English tale of the 90s. I've got an extraordinarily long tail here, which I guess might have played a part in, in Phil going for Giles over, over Monty. Yeah, well, Joe's, Joe's nailed it as ever. Um, I, I couldn't have Goff or Caddick or Harmison at eight. If this is the best <laughs> team that England have been able to produce in that decade when it all came together... And we've got one of those at eight. I'm sorry, I can't do it. I can't do it. Uh, Monty had beautiful days. Unquestionably a more attacking, <clears throat> certainly a more beguiling and more effective bowler than Giles overall. No question about it. But he wasn't warm. He wasn't Murrily. He wasn't Kumble. He was an effective left-arm spinner on his day. And in the end, Giles, by a nose, because he can... He, he makes that team look like a normal cricket team. Remove Giles and put Monty in there. You've, you've got three number 11s and one number 10 batting at eight. I, I, I can't do that. I feel like we're stuck in, in Duncan Fletcher's brain well, in 2006. You know, like being Duncan Fletcher, we've just sort of crawled into the portal. Yeah, for me, it's Giles. Um, I don't really care. What do you think, Yaz? It's a really difficult one. Um, as Joe said, Monty's the better bowler, but I think only marginally. I don't think it's. I don't think he's way out in front of Giles. But the problem is, if you put Monty in the team, you've got a ridiculous tail end that just isn't <laughs> a lower order that any Test match side, even in the even even in the mid two thousands, would ever have selected. It's just it's just not a proper batting lineup. Duncan Fletcher, who famously only wanted to pick bowlers who who could bat a bit would be look on in horror at my side, which originally, because I had Anderson initially when I did my very first side, I had Harmison at eight, which was, which would have been absolutely ridiculous. Look, I, I can see where you're coming from. Um, we'd certainly need a lot of runs from our top seven if we're going for Monty over Giles. Um, I, I'm, I'm willing to... I'm not backing down on this one. Are you not? All right. No. All right. You, you've taken two off me already. You're not having this one. Took 10 for at Lords against the mighty West Indies. Oh, dear. All right, look, we're having Giles at eight, I'm afraid. There's no two ways about it. Giles is in at eight. So we've, uh, we've got a team. A flimsy and fragile team. Yeah, not quite. Yeah. This is the team of the decade. Trescothic, Strauss, Vaughan, Peterson, Thorpe, Stewart, Flintoff, Giles, Harmson, Caddick, Hoggard. Um, Vaughan, Vaughan, captain, right? No, no debates about that. Strauss was only about halfway through his, if, if that is uh, Capsi, his uh, time's captain. Yeah. I mean, a more interesting debate would who would, you go, who would you go for discounting the decade? So would you always go for Vaughan over Strauss? As I think most people probably would on balance, but whether that's right or not, I don't know. I, I probably would go with Vaughan, even taking out the, the um, question of the decade just because I felt like he set up a team more than, than Strauss did, probably. But, I mean, Strauss obviously did extraordinary record-breaking things with that England side. Uh, that would be a tough one. But, yeah, in this decade, it's got to be Vaughan. It's almost another show, the Strauss versus Vaughan captaincy debate. It's an interesting one, because if you look at the characters in the 10-11 tour, 
some big characters, some big alpha type characters. And we saw what happened three or four years later when the whole thing collapsed. And I wonder if Vaughan, who was very matey, very pally, but quite laid back on Peterson's side, this, that and the other, would have liked Swan, would have liked Peterson, would have liked that kind of dynamic. I wonder if he would have run quite as tight a ship. Uh, as Strauss clearly did in 10-11. It's an interesting one. It's probably another show. As we don't have anything else to talk about, let's do it next week. <laughs> uh, cool. Well, now, now we've got our ODI team of the decade. Um, again, some, some <laughs> obviously not a particularly successful decade. <laughs> but it's worth noting that we online, we did the, the Wisden ODI team of the decade for all countries. And we had two Englishmen in the 11, despite not having two, uh, any Englishmen in the test team. So, despite the team not doing well, maybe some individuals did stand out. And you've both got Treskovic, Peterson, Collingwood and Flintoff in your top sixes. Not really surprised there. Um, Actually, I'm going to stop you, yes. I don't have Collingwood in my top six. He's at he's seven. Not... In I, th- I thought, okay. you both got Treskovic. He's in there, but he's at seven. Okay. Well, you've got uh, Treskovic, Peterson, Collingwood and Flintoff in your top sevens. <laughs> Let's start at the top. Phil, you initially went with a man who only played three games and scored 21 runs in this decade. <laughs> <laughs> in the absence of Ben, you decided to be really contrary, clearly, isn't it? Well, look, uh, we knew there needed to be some points of difference. All I did, all I did was slightly adjust the parameters of this, yeah, is by removing the word international from the term one day international. Uh, and that then left me with Ali Brown, right, who played, I think, three games, as you say, in, in that decade. Um, just briefly on Brown, because I'm not serious that he should be in the team um, by your by your your you know your recommendations or, or your requirements. But he played, I think, 16 games all in. It's one of the, the most extravagant cock-ups in English history. Certainly in, in my time following the game, he made a brilliant hundred against India to win the game. He made a very very good 37 on debut against a very good South African side on a wet one, basically when no one got any runs. He also made 59 in 40 balls against Pollock, Donald and Klusner in a run chase. Two ga- three games later, he didn't play again. That was it. This, remember, is the bloke who made 203 and 268 in, in, in a one-day game. The first one in a 40-over game. This is a bloke who's made, who made thousands and thousands of runs at an obscenely uh, unusual strike rate for the time and showed in the, the odd occasion when he was allowed to play, to play one-day cricket, that he had the game against the Quicks. So there is no rational reason why he didn't play a lot of, a lot of cricket for England in one-day cricket. He also, in brackets, averaged 43 over a best part of a 20-year first-class career. So he wasn't just a blind hitter who, when he got to the top, was found out. He was a far better player than that. A far, far better player than that. He made over 50 first-class hundreds. So the fact that Brown only played 16 games. It's a shocker. It's a joke. It's ridiculous. Obviously, he's not in this team. As is your selection of him in this team. OD, he's in my team. He retired in 2011, incidentally, so he played the whole decade. OD, he's in my team. ODI, all right, even I'm struggling to justify that one. An easy mistake to make that I made before when saying, in hindsight, that someone should have paid more for England than they actually did is pinning down a point when they actually should have played more for England. So a few weeks ago, I, I said that Ravi Papara should have played more Test cricket for England than he did. But actually, when I was going through it, I couldn't think of a time when I thought he should have been in, in the team more often than, than he was. Um, so when do you think Brown 
should have played more. He made 268 in 2002. 268 in one, in one day, in 50 overs. Um, three or four years before that, I think in 98 or it might be 99, he made 203 in a 40 over game. Um, he'd already made his innings before he did those. He made those two innings. Pick him whenever. Pick him whenever. Pick him from the time they picked him. I think in 96, might have been slightly later. Might be 98, can't remember offhand. And then play him and back him. It was so redolent of England's muddled stupidity at the time when it came to one-day cricket. It was nothing more than, a, than an add-on, an adjunct to the test side, uh, which is why Brown was inexplicably ignored. But yeah, playing from the late 90s onwards and then playing throughout that decade. Uh, and he'd have, made, he'd have played 100 games and he'd have won a fair few of them. Well, a major reason why he didn't play in the early noughties is because of Joe's second pick as an opening batsman. Nick Knight, who averaged over 40 in ODI cricket at the beginning of this decade. Well, yeah, so I've gone with Triscothic and Knight, who from, what, 2000 to 2003 would have been pretty much the, the mainstay of England's top order. Um, so I, I guess around that time, you could potentially see why Brown wasn't playing. But on Phil's timeline, Brown would have already been in the side and had a chance to nail down his position by then. So, um, yeah, I, I suppose the other... Strauss was sort of in the mix, but actually his, his record in that decade wasn't fantastic. I mean, it wasn't fantastic overall, but there was the, the one five eight against India always sticks in the mind. What an incredible knock that was. But that was obviously the 2011 World Cup, so it just miss, misses out. Um, I was just looking at Triscothic's record as well. We, between Peterson's, before Peterson's arrival, he was clearly England's best one-day batsman by, by a distance. 1,200s, which Joe Root's only just gone past as, as the England record. Struggle at 85 uh, which is better than Herschel Gibbs. In fact, I did your like this one, Yaz, did some stats research. During his ODI career, only five openers who scored 1,000 runs had a better strike rate. Uh, Afridi, Gilchrist, Selag, Jaya Saria and Tendulkar. So pretty good names above him. So he, he, was, he was not only consistently scoring runs, but he was consistently scoring them at a lick that was not common at that time and certainly not among English batsmen. So he's obviously an absolute gimme. Uh, and then Nick Knight was... He'd been, for quite a few years, he, he kind of held that England's top order together as best he could. Um, he was unlucky. It was the 99 World Cup. He got, he got dropped for Nasser, didn't he? Uh, out of the blue, right at the start of the tournament. Um, and then Nasser kind of stank the place out, just batting really slowly. And then obviously they got knocked out on net run rate in the end. So that, that was one of the calls that didn't quite work out. Phil might point out where the hell was Ali Brown in that, in that tournament as well. Um, so, yeah, just Gothic, definitely Knight, pretty emphatically my second choice. Yeah, all, all fair and, and well argued. Um, Knight, Knight didn't really deliver in the 03 World Cup. He opened with Triscothic in that tournament and it was, it was frustratingly brief because I remember watching him and he made a couple of good 30s and he thought, OK, he might be able to push on here, but he never really did it. And that was the story of Knight's career, really, with England. There was a good a good player in there, I think, that never quite nailed it. Was there a player? Yes, there was. But did we see it? Not quite, unfortunately. Um, Average of 41, though. That's, that's... Yeah, no, I know. I mean, the numbers are not too bad. The numbers are pretty good. Obviously, you're batting in the best possible slot. Um, I, I don't have an issue. I, I struggled with the, 
the opening batsman, to be honest. I struggled with the other opening batsman alongside Triscothic, um, who incidentally was a world-class ODI player. He was a very good test player, but he was a world-class ODI player and was ahead of his time, really. He, he was doing things that English players just didn't really do. Um, the, the opening bat, tricky, you know. Bell didn't even really open at that time, but became a decent opener towards the, the next uh, the next decade. There's a, there's a case to be made just about that Bell can slip in there somewhere, although the record is average, really. Um, Knight's record on paper uh, gets him in there alongside Triscothic, but uh, it's an underwhelming choice, isn't it? Let's be honest. You've both gone with Peterson, Flintoff and Collingwood in the middle order. Where are you going to bat Peterson? Well, I, I pick him at three, and especially now as well, as the game has moved on again, it's just implausible inconceivable rather that you'd have a player of that quality batting four or five um, as of course which is where he began in that in that side now the attitude even in 50 over cricket is that you just have as much of the game as you can you give as much of the game as you can to the best players um peterson could have opened the batting for england and made made lots lots and lots of odi rounds as it is i think a three that's where you, you put your best player either there or open and he is obviously so yeah, yeah. i back three personally well, I, yeah, I mean, I put him at four because that's where he batted and my number three batted at number three. But if I was picking this team for this decade, obviously, Peterson's, yeah, Peterson's absolutely number three, if not an opener. Um, so I'm willing to shift that around. And my number three, talking of underwhelming picks, I, was another underwhelming pick. I've gone with Ian Bell at three, despite the fact he got 179 matches in, in that period. Uh, not close to good enough for a player of his ability, uh, particularly when he was batting in the top three for all, of, all but a handful of those innings. Strike rate is 72. Hardly jumps off the page either. Um, but then he did. He finished his career as England's ODI leading run scorer. He's been overtaken since. So he could obviously play, but he never did his justice talent in 50-over cricket. He played some brilliant innings for Warwickshire. He won a, a CNG trophy that he kind of won almost single-handedly. So he could do it, but it just, it, yeah, it was only ever bits and pieces. Very frustratingly so. It was, it was a frustrating decade across the board. M Michael Vaughan was at one point the number one ranked test match player in the world and automatically then started batting three in the ODI side. Uh, I think he played 80 plus games. I got it. 80 plus games for a higher score of 86. He played 86, no hundreds, average 27. And I just, every time he would get out and just like, well, why can't he play ODI yeah. cricket? And I still don't really know. Do you think there's a technical reason why he couldn't nail it? I think a lot of it comes down to tempo. It, and there was something about the approach in 50-over cricket where England just didn't know. They didn't know how to deal with those middle overs. They, they'd come unstuck so often in those middle overs. And Vaughan in test cricket would have a natural tempo and he'd build through the innings. He wouldn't have to go slow, slow, quick, quick, slow. He'd just play his natural game. The field would be relatively up. Because he wasn't a big hitter, same with Bell, because they weren't big hitters. They, did, they, kind of, they didn't know where to go a lot of the time, I found, in, in ODI cricket. Uh, and then it becomes a thing, and then it gets in your head, and then you can't shake it. You can't get rid of it. The, the Vaughan thing is, is a real mystery. I saw that 86. He made it in the Champions Trophy in 2004 against Australia at Edgbaston, and I saw that game. Uh, and he looked like a top-quality player. Everyone thought like he cracked it, didn't they? He's 140-odd that yeah. day. Uh, and yeah, that was the best it got. 
from 80 plus games. Very, very strange. Very, very strange. Then Collingwood at four and Flintoff at five? Yeah, uh, Flintoff has to be five. And this is my, he's got to play like a proper batsman. Uh, a bit like Ben Stokes now. Flintoff was never particularly good at coming out and just whacking it. That was never really his game. Obviously, he could whack it miles, but he, he took time to play himself in. And number five suited him really well. His record is astonishing. I mean, average is 46 at number five, strike rate of 94. I mean, that is kind of, that is Ben Stokes stuff, basically. Um, and with Flintoff, I, I was only kind of, I did recall this, but not quite how good it was. His unbelievable form in 2004, looking back on that year as a whole. So he scored all three of his ODI centuries in that year, plus a 99. Uh, his bowling was kind of coming to its peak at that point as well. So he averaged 58 with the bat and 21 with the ball across 2004. I mean, he's arguably the best one-day player in the world at, at that stage. And obviously, we all know what followed the next summer. That was really different format, but the real emergence of Flintoff as a, as a genuine top quality uh, international player who kind of dragged the team along with him. And that kind of started in one day cricket almost before it did in test cricket, really. Bang on. That 99 he made at the Oval um, and he hit, he hit the ball slap, slap, you know, straight up in the air for his 100th run and just strolled off giggling, smiling when the ball was still in the air. And there was just that little glimpse of this young lad who you knew you'd heard about, but you hadn't really seen yet. But that was the summer. That was the summer. 03 and 04 were the two summers where it just exploded for the bloke. Uh, and that 99 at the Oval against South Africa was just a, just a classic, really. Um, and we all started to fall in love with the bloke around then, really. He, he was, as Joe says, he was a top, top, top class one-day cricketer at that time. Um, so, yeah, five, five's where he did his best work. So we've got Peterson and... Peterson, no, no, hold on. You've got Peterson at four, haven't you? No, I'll have Peterson at three. I'm, I'm happy to swap that. Okay. And Collingwood, you know, resourceful player. He obviously always have that 100 at Melbourne to somehow salvage something from the wreckage of that 06-07 tour. Uh, and he was, he was leading that side, 06-07 as well, against Australia. And pulled it out of the bag. He made runs in the, in the, the semi, the, effectively the semi-final, and then made the 100 unbeaten in the final. Um, and took over 100 wickets as well across the decade. So, so Colin was obviously a shoe in I'd stick him in there at four because, you know, he runs hard between the wickets. He can, he can tie the big hitters together, separate them up a little bit. Peterson at three, Collingwood at four, Flintoff at five. Who you got at six, Joe? So at six, I've got Alex Stewart as my keeper at six. And I've got Flintoff at five. So I've got Collingwood at seven. He's my captain. He's at number seven. He's a sort of, he's not doing all that much. But he's running the show. He's your insurance policy for the inevitable pulls up in the middle order. Because he was quite a good hitter uh, late in the order. Like, kind of, he never looked like a particularly good hitter, but he did it quite effectively. Often he'd get kind of 24 or 15 balls or something towards the end. So even though that's not really the role he played for England that often, uh, I think he's, he's, he's a good option for that. Um, and he'd get through a fair amount of overs. He wouldn't be, he's not in my five bowlers, but he's, he'd certainly bowl a fair few as my sixth option. I mean, this is the problem with the team. Who bats, who bats six and seven if that's your top five? So, Stuart, fair enough, but who's, who's your other person to fill that spot? Well, my team's all over the show, obviously. But at number six, um, I've gone with O.A. Shah as my, kind of, my sixth batsman, in effect. Now, you know, the, the Stuart's keeper thing, I understand that. Uh, but 
I'd have even potentially looked at Oeshar at seven if Stewie is going to get the gloves at six. Because Oeshar, while the record, he averaged 30 on the nose pretty much from a fair few games. While the record is not especially striking, the days when he played well were real standouts. And I think for a year or two, he became one of England's real bankers in the middle of the decade in ODI cricket. Uh, he was never backed. Quite an eccentric character. Probably quite a tricky character to captain, I would say. But, but a serious player, serious talent. And on his day, a fabulous, fabulous batsman. Um, I can think of a couple of, couple of innings off the top of my head, but he made a fabulous 100 at, at the Oval against India. Um, and I think his game was not exactly ahead of his time, but I think he intuitively and naturally understood the way that one-day cricket was going. I think if he'd been backed a little bit more, maybe brought in slightly earlier in, in, the, in the setup, then I think he'd have been a very effective one-day player for England over a long period of time. That's, that's my personal reading of it. Well, I also well, remember he made a 60-odd as a kid in the first ever game I saw as a grown-up at Lord's. Um, he made 100, he made 60, he was just a kid. Uh, and I always loved watching him play. Always loved watching him play. And I think at six, if you allow him to fail here and there, I think he'll also win you some games. Well, there's nothing wrong with averaging 30 in the 2000s, Phil. Uh, Indeed. Put... Also, also at six, you know, he tended to bat at six. So, you know, mm-hmm. the, the Dhoni phenomenon had yet to take, take root. I, I strongly considered Shah. I actually thought his average was a little bit better. I was a bit surprised. I thought it was more like kind of 34, 35, but yes, yeah, 31. Um, so I did strongly consider him. I was there at the Oval in, it was 07, I think, when he got his 100, wasn't he? And it, he ran out Peterson early innings and Peterson just blew his top. And Shah was obviously, a bit, it looks a bit scared, basically, just didn't want to go back to the pavilion and then put together this brilliant 100. And then that was the game that Mascarenas hit five sixes, at least three of which went back over my head. Um, so, yeah, so that, that inning really sticks in there. There wasn't enough of it, but we could say that for pretty much every player that Phil and I have, have picked uh, in this team. So, Shah or Bell, it's a bit of a toss-up. Um, I'm more inclined to go for Shah just because I think Bell, I was more disappointed by Bell than I was by Shah as a one-day batsman. Would that mean Shah at six then? Probably. I think Shah's got to be six. Above. I think, yeah, I think so. Going through the list, there are just very few options for the middle order spots. Like, 30 is <laughs> a pretty good average for the 2000s. So, so names that people would think, where are they? Like, but Morgan and Trot both debuted in 2009, played, what, a couple of games each? So they're... I mean, all they would have played was about seven more and they'd have probably been good enough to get in, but you, you can't pick them on on that basis. Yeah, just going through the list of the other mid-order, I guess, top-order options as well. Vaughan averaged 27, Hussain 31, Solanke 26, Bopara 27, Pryor 24, Jones 24, Cook 30 opening the batting, Thorpe 29 and Hick 30. Weird, you never want anything, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So on, onto the bowlers. You've both gone for Goff and Anderson, unsurprisingly. Goff played a lot more ODI cricket in the decade in the test cricket, I think he ended his career in 2006 and Anderson was successful all the way back from 2000, the 2003 World Cup where he famously burst onto the scene. Who, who have you guys gone for for the third team as well? All right, well, look, I'll, I'll take the third team. Randy Caddick's economy rate across, the, across that decade, across that period is comfortably the best of the lot. Economy rate of under four. Was it? Yeah. Three point, well, obviously. 3.8, I think it was. Uh, and... He'll always have that day at Port Elizabeth as well, the 4 for 30 odd, when England really should have won that game. Bickle broke everyone's hearts. Bickle and Bevan broke everyone's hearts. 
so I'm, I'm going with Caddick, whose record is good. Um, uh, and yeah, as we said earlier, he's the kind of cricketer that I like. So yeah, Caddick for me is the third seamer. Who did you go with, Joe? Uh, I went. I did consider Caddick, but I actually had Broad just ahead of Harmison. Uh, but I have to admit, I didn't notice Caddick's economy rate. That is quite quite compelling. Uh, Broad, 94 wickets at 26 in the decade. Very strong record. Um, as I said, I was weighing him up against Harmison, really. Uh, thought he's the much more skilled one-day bowler than Harmison. More skilled one-day bowler than Caddick as well, really. Who was kind of more metronomic in that kind of style, which in the, in the noughties was fine. I wouldn't have fancied him as a one-day bowler um, these days, particularly. But I guess he'd have probably adapted. Um, yeah... So how many wickets did Caddick take in the decade? 54 at 29. Yeah, I, I'm, I think I'm sticking with Broad on this one. Fine. <laughs> Broad was a skillful white ball bowler for a very long time. He took his wickets at 25 and was a mainstay in that England attack for the second half of that decade. Well, he was a really good one-day bowler and people kind of forget that a bit because England quite rightly decided that they're better off extending his test career. So both him and Anderson stopped playing white ball cricket well before they needed to. They could have, I'm utterly, they're so, both so skillful bowlers. They could have absolutely learned the skills that, I mean, Chris Wokes was more of a test bowler initially and became a one day bowler because he worked on those skills. Broad could have done exactly the same thing over a long period of time, but it just didn't suit the overall needs of the, of the England side. Um, so, yeah, I'm sticking with Broad. So you can, you can decide this one, yes. And that, or is, are you seeding this one, Bill? No, no, it's all yours. Yeah, Broad edges it for me. Yeah, fine by me. It is interesting how it's all changed around, though. How, how obviously the skills have had to emerge, had to evolve over time. It's interesting because we assume Caddick, line and length merchant these days, if he were to continue bowling that medium fast, you know, Josh Butler and the like would just kind of be ramping him and flicking him over at square leg and so on. McGrath was comfortably up yeah. there in the most powerful ODI bowlers of his time, you know, and as, as we did, as we were discussing a week or two ago, if you look at his one day record, in that decade, he was absolutely untouchable. And yet he would have been considered to be a similar kind of bowler to the likes of Caddick and Hoggard as well. Hoggard never had a one-day career because Hoggard was deemed to be too hittable, too easy to line up and hit in one-day cricket. And yet he was, he was hard to, hard parsimonious and very accurate test match bowler. He went the distance, didn't he, in a few yeah, ODIs? I think Caddick's height... Caddick bowling naturally short of a length. I think he would. I think we might underestimate him a little bit as a, as a one-day bowler. But I'm absolutely comfortable that Broad, with the the skills that he would have brought, and as a fielder as well, uh, he could back Broad, back then too. Yeah, and he could back back then. This is true. So Broad absolutely is fine. Absolutely fair enough. No dramas there at all. Amazing that we're picking a team of the 2000s, and we've still got Broad and Anderson in it. Anyway, on to the spinner. Again, slim pickings for this one. Joe, how did, how did you go about picking this spot? Yeah, slim pickings, really. Uh, Jilo v Swan was my, the one I was debating. So Swan only played 29 matches in the decade, 31 wickets. Uh, you obviously debuted in 2000, but pissed everyone off to such an extent that he didn't play again for another seven years, uh, which, well, read, read into that what you will. Um, but since when he came back, was a was a brilliant one-day bowler at the back end of that decade. Uh, and Giles was steady, but but no more than that. So yeah, Swan just by just by nose. Yeah, well, I I went with Gilo, uh, but tit for tat really. 
and Swan would have been a more more attacking and incisive bowler uh, overall. It's quite a small sample size for both of them, really. Um, but yeah, I can understand why why Swan would get the nod. Um, if this is my team, I'd have to be managing it and dealing with it. The dial definitely becomes uh, my pick on that score. But yeah, I can understand why Swan would get the nod. So let's slip him in there. Let's slip Swan in there. What, number number eight? Is that right? Long tail. Another long tail. I don't know. Broad, broad and Swan at 89 is not that bad at all. Um, but anyway, we, we finally have a team. That team is Trescothic, Knight, Peterson, Collingwood, Flintoff, Shaw, Stewart, Swan, Broad, Goff and Anson. We need to pick a captain. There weren't any particularly successful England ODI captains over the 2000s. So who are you guys going to go for? So I, I wrote this. That's how the options in my side. Flintoff won four of 14 matches. KP won four of 12. Collingwood 11 of 25. And Stewart three of 11. So that you pick really. I was quite tempted sort of cheekily to go with Peterson. He averaged 52 as captain in his 12 ODIs. Um, and... I think it would have brought the best out of him as a batsman to be the captain. Whether it would have brought the best out of the team uh, or the board or the coaching staff is uh, a matter. Yeah. Also, I'm back in Collingwood at seven uh, and he's not really bowling. He's got to do something, hasn't he? So he can, he can be my Excellent. Thanks, Phil and Joe. This has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. Thanks for listening, folks. If you enjoy the show, tell your friends and if you're feeling especially nice today, why not leave us a five-star review and podcast app. Cheers. Podcast Network.